welcome to Cinemaker, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 13, Full Frontal, from 2002. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I am Tobin Addington. And we have a forerunner for my least favorite film we're going to do this entire run, I think. So we've been ranking these movies, and I, I had it second to last, and then as the movie went on, I was like, no. Like, the underneath, when we talked about the underneath, that was bad, but it was just more boring. This was, like, actively bad. Yeah, at least the underneath had some really interesting stuff with color. It had Elizabeth's yeah. shoe. It had some good performances. I'm right with you. This is definitely at the bottom for me, easily, easily. Uh, I don't know how... <laughs> This happened, but whoa, was I surprised. Before Tobin responds, I just want to say that I'm really worried that he liked this movie, so go ahead. No, I put it at the bottom as well. Good. I, I, I'm gonna be I'm, I'm gonna be a little more of its defender than I think than I think sure, you guys okay. are. I think it's an interesting failure, but I do think it's a failure. Yeah, I'd say there's some interesting things going on here, but not enough to save the project. Right, right. What I think is interesting about it is that only Steven Soderbergh would follow up Ocean's Eleven with this movie. Yeah, yeah. That I mean as a compliment, and I mean compliment and an insult. Just like, you're on top of the world, you just made a movie with a handful of the most famous people on Earth, and here you have those same people to some extent, and you're like... There's a note that he attached to the script, which is amazing, which I will share with you guys. But, like, you take them from that such great heights, and you're like, hey, let's do this thing. And it's just like, uh, okay. It's about as far from Oceans as you can probably try to get, right? Like, yeah. that's what it feels like. Like, he wants to go in as far away from what he just did as possible, if possible. But I don't know if that's quite possible. If you could, if you could go there after doing Oceans, like, can you do that? And do it successfully, even if this was a better movie. I don't know if I see him like that right now. It's just very jarring because it's such a big pendulum swing from where we just were. In terms of making the movie that's opposite of Ocean's Eleven, like, that's... I think if if that's your goal, and it seems on some of like that was his goal, okay, cool, I get it. You did this whole big thing, now you're going to make a movie for $2 million, Miramax is going to write it off as like a rounding error, it's going to be fine. But at the same time... I'm okay with him casting Julia Roberts in it because, you know, he's worked with her before. You know, if they want to do that thing, cool. But then don't use Brad Pitt as, like, a gimmick. You know what I mean? Like, that that bothered me in terms of the, hey, let's just do this movie for no budget, but then, like, still get my friends to pay me a favor. Like, it just, everything just sort of fell off. What's annoying is that this seems like the kind of movie that I could have loved, and then just nothing worked for me. Yeah, you know, I want him to experiment. I want him to try things. And part of that is that is that they're going to fail. There's no real reason Schizopolis should be as good as it is. And I, this movie, I think, tries to play in some of the same space. He's trying to play in a more avant-garde space. He's trying to play a little more with a lot more improv and randomness and how those things might connect later on. This just feels to me so much less substantial than Schizopolis was. Like, it's not really about anything in a way that I think that is. And it doesn't seem to have as much on its mind. So I'm glad he made this film. It, it, this is the first one that I've never seen. No, it's not true. I hadn't seen Grey's Anatomy. This is the, the second one. This, but I, I was well aware of this when it came out. I was a big Soderbergh fan. I was in film school. We were, we were going so to why didn't you see it back then? I think I smelled the whiff of... Oh, a little pretension and a little... Okay. I, I got the sense it was an experiment gone wrong. And I think, I think it is. 
it feels like he went a little too far whether that be like incoherence or just it's like too much of a puzzle or you know too many threads or too many strands i see like he's done stuff like this before and it's worked which is why this was so sort of disappointing because it had potential i don't think it's the way he does it like the mix of digital and film and thing i don't think like that's the issue i don't really think like it's the acting i think it's more or less just it becomes too intertwined in on itself in ways that aren't entertaining or rewarding you know like i understand he wanted to make it sort of a meta puzzle of reality and fiction in some ways but ultimately you said tobin like i don't really understand what he was trying to say necessarily i don't i don't feel the point as strong as any of his other films it's boring inland empire is what this basically turns out to be because like that movie is about like a movie within a movie maybe within a movie and this too it's like you know that they're making a movie they're talking about actors and then julia roberts takes off her wig and you're like wait what's going on now there's levels here but i also don't understand the why of it like it doesn't right. I, I i also to the film's credit i guess it turned me off so quickly that i didn't pay as close attention maybe as i could have or should have in which case some of it would have been illuminated but i also feel like the part that i did really fully pay attention to it wasn't interested in being clear that it just wanted to sort of be like here's a bunch of things going on maybe simultaneously but just sort of like check these people out like the fact that the movie starts out with like eight, you know, still frames of, like, picture, and then there's, like, a lot of text on screen. There's voiceover saying other things. It's like, what does this movie want me to pay attention to? Yeah, and not just that. It, then it launches into a fake credit sequence with a phony title and, yeah. and all of that stuff. I'll admit, like, I was kind of turned off too just because it felt like there were a lot of restarts in that regard like you said like we have the photos with the text then we have these fake credits and then we have like these two different movies going on and i really wish it was just a little more streamlined and i don't mind the clutter if in the end it's going to come together in some kind of satisfying way but i didn't feel like these threads met up or matched even to the degree of something like traffic you know even in traffic the characters didn't have to all meet each other but I at least thematically felt like they all played a part in each other's different stories there. But here it just feels a little more randomized. Yeah, and th- there's a navel-gazing quality to the fact that it's about Hollywood in this way that, that I found a little off-putting or that maybe felt a little empty. His writer here, Coleman Huff, I think maybe is how you say her last name, she's going to recur in this series. She's going to write a movie called Bubble that he makes for even less even less money than this, a movie that I quite like. And I, not, it's not for everybody, but I, but I quite like it. And I, I think part of the reason I like it is that it gets away from this from this L.A. scene, you know, he did such an interesting thing in depicting L.A. and then Northern California in the limey that sort of disappears here. This feels a little more, a little more sort of for show and a little more interested in the show itself than I think maybe is good for the movie. Speaking of the limey. Yes. You guys mm-hmm. catch him? Yeah, of course. He's in, yeah. This, yeah, twice. He's in this movie twice. Oh, I only saw him the one time, but the one time, so he's in the plane, and he's basically acting his scene from the plane, yeah, he's right? With, like he's acting he's his with, scene from the limey. He's with the woman he's with on the plane, yeah. That's what just kind of bothered me, too, because the movie they're making takes place in the world of the limey, but then later, when you find out everything shot on video is reality, you see Terrence Stamp again, like, in a lobby somewhere. So is the limey being shot at the same time as the fake movie in this? <laughs> like, that's what I mean by it just gets a little too complex. 
And that's what's frustrating because those kind of things are what I should love. And I'm just like, like, I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm like, wait, what, like, what sense does this make? I think it's guerrilla filmmaking at its most core. Because here's the note that Soderbergh attached to everybody he gave the screenplay to. It's a list of 10 things or something. Number one, all sets are practical locations. Number two, you will drive yourself to the set. If you are unable to drive yourself, a driver will pick you up, but you will probably become the subject of ridicule. Either way, you must arrive alone. Number three, there will be no craft service, so you should arrive on set, quote, having had. Meals will vary in quality. Number four, you will pick, provide, and maintain your own wardrobe. Number five, you will create and maintain your own hair and makeup. Number six, there will be no trailers. The company will attempt to provide holding areas near a given location, but don't count on it. If you need to be alone a lot, you're pretty much screwed. Number seven, improvisation will be encouraged. Number eight, you'll be interviewed about your character. This material may end up in the film. Number nine, you will be interviewed about the other characters. This material may end up in the finished film. Number 10, you will have fun whether you want to or not. If any of these guidelines are problematic for you, stop reading now and send the screenplay back where it came from. So I can see, because we all love him, like we, like we really like how he makes movies and like the movies he makes, but also like the way he makes them and all that sort of stuff. And I can see, especially if you're an actor who's worked with him before, or maybe you've seen some of his earlier work or his big budget work and like, you're like, oh, this guy seems awesome. And then you get this script and like these notes and like, yeah, like, yeah, I'll take a couple of weeks and like, I'll just do this thing for no money because I want to work with him. And then like, this is the movie. It's super, super weird. Yeah, it's strange because usually when you hear about a project with this much ambition, it's like one of those $200 million blockbuster missteps, not like a $2 million indie misstep. And by the sound of it, it's like, yeah, this is like a great idea for an experiment and stuff. But again, I think we talked about this somewhat in Keanu Club. You know, not every experiment is fit for release. Like, even if Keanu's in it or if Steven Soderbergh directed it, like, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's fit for public display necessarily and it just seems like this is you know come to Soderbergh's film school for a week and we'll have camp and we'll have fun and whatever the finished product is we're just going to release it because uh, he's at least in the position to get anything released at this point so it's sort of like the only moment in time where maybe he could pull something like this off so I, I, I give him credit for going for it but I just wish he had gone for something a little more traditional right after the oceans. I'm glad he didn't. I'm glad he didn't do something more traditional. I'm not necessarily glad it's this film that we got, but I think, you know, here's a guy who tried to go traditional immediately after Kafka, right? <laughs> I mean, he, you know, he 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 made that he tried that move before it it really didn't work for him. This this comes out, it's 2 million bucks. As you say, it's it's a it's a rounding error for Miramax. It comes out, nobody sees it. That's okay. Nobody cares. Like you know, he he really has nothing nothing to lose here. I think it's a little unfair, in my opinion, to tar this movie with the idea that it's not fit for release. There's there's some really wonderful things in this movie. I think Catherine Keener is fantastic in this movie. I think that the scenes she has, she's a vice president of human resources at at some unnamed company a generic company, and she asks these people these wacky, crazy, inappropriate questions as she's sort of doing her interviews and stuff. 
of people in the office. And, and she, there's a madcap quality that, that she has that, you know, I, I thought was great. I think David Hyde Pierce, her, the actor playing her husband is great. His storyline doesn't go anywhere, but he's, but he's great to watch. I, I think that if nothing else, there are some performances in here that show that Soderbergh and his actors are getting something out of the experience, even if it's not adding up to a whole in a way that for me at least makes it, it makes it watchable. This isn't something that I would bury my head in shame had I made. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily Generation Um, don't get me wrong. Like, I could I could see people actually liking this very much. I mean, I actually like parts of this very much as well. My favorite parts and what I wish the whole movie was is the sound in the Fuhrer. I wish that they just made the making of that, not off-Broadway, but like this, like that small play in Hollywood where the method actors playing Hitler and the other guy is like the the director who's online the whole time like I that was some of my favorite stuff and I just thought it was the funniest stuff and the stuff that felt like it worked best because it was just being silly I almost felt like that stuff should have been the tone of the whole movie more. Like you said, like the Catherine Keener stuff gets there at times when she's throwing the globe at people and they're standing on the chair and they're naming the countries and everything. Like that's when the movie gets where I feel like it needs to be the whole movie. But then with the other segments like the masseuse and some of the other stuff, it just gets a little too, I don't want to say depressing, but it gets kind of sad and it just loses the tone for me a bit where and I'm more expecting it to be wackier. Yeah, it doesn't cohere in terms of story or character or tone or like that it does not feel like the same world sort of vignette to vignette and i think that's to the movie's detriment i really do i think this is as i say an inter- interesting failure but there are moments for me within that that do still that do still work there's a i think a really beautiful love scene between Catherine keener and blair underwood where it's shot all out of focus like one of them comes into the room and the, the camera sort of voyeuristically is you know, shooting around between things and and goes so out of focus, we can just barely infer what's going on as they get undressed and then and start to have sex. And I think he's I think he's really good at shooting intimacy. I think it's something that it has me excited for another thing of his that I that I haven't seen that Eros movie that he has a segment in that I've never seen that's that's meant to be about sort of the erotic life of, of a couple characters. And I think he does that really well here. That's that's a thing that I made note of that and said, oh, let's let's put that in the memory bank. That could be useful sometime making a film but you know there aren't many of those moments in the movie i wish that he did what he did in like traffic where you have even to that extreme where you have three different stories and three different film stocks or colorings or something like here you sort of have a couple different film qualities but i had a hard time following so like if you have the Blair Underwood story or whatever, and that's one, or you have like the wacky Catherine Keener stuff, and like that's a separate, like, I just want more distinction so I could sort of know what's happening. Because I feel like he sort of does that a little bit, but then kind of intentionally muddies the water. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's not as easy to follow in that regard. For what I understood, like watching the movie, I thought everything that looked like a um, shot on film, I thought that was reality. And I didn't know what all the digital stuff was going to be. I thought we'd get to it. But then, like you said, at some point, I think at like the 45 minute mark, they yell cut. And then everything switches. You realize that everything shot in video is reality. And then when you go back to seeing stuff shot on film, 
I kind of felt like the mystery was gone almost. I was like, oh, okay, now I know that this isn't real. What does it have to do with the rest of the stuff? Uh, it kind of was like, I almost was expecting him to completely drop anything shot on film at that point, but he doesn't. And then he even has that scene with Blair Underwood and Brad Pitt shot on film shown through the film camera where you can see like the audio on the you know in the sprockets and like everything you know and he's like getting even deeper into the into that level yeah i wish it was a little more clear or maybe a little more coded uh a little easier to follow in that sense i would have been fine if this was just completely shot on digital video like i don't mind that as a look as long as that's the whole look of the movie. I think switching back and forth between film got kind of jarring again. Like, this reminded me of Ellie Parker in a way, uh, an Naomi Watts film that's shot entirely on DV. And I feel like because they never cut away to film or anything, that movie plays because that reality is never fractured. And here, it throws me off. But then what he sort of doubles down, and not intentionally so, because apparently they were just missing somebody on set, but like, he's in this movie as a director and then he throws that black square over his head i guess so you don't see like oh why is steven soderbergh in his own movie no that's a joke that's a joke he knows we're gonna know who that is that's just him being that's a joke that would have worked in schizopolis that just doesn't work here well i read that he was missing some like i I read that he, he wasn't supposed to do that or something it's not because he thinks we're not gonna see who it is Okay. Yeah. Again, everything I'm describing sounds like things that I would love in other things. It just I think that the sheer frequency of it all baffles me. It's relentless in its intentional misdirection. And like I can't explain or describe what's going on. Like I guess it's like twenty four hours and there's like a party, but like the party doesn't matter. Like it's Yeah, none of, none of it matters. No, none of it matters. And this is the this is really one of the failings of the movie that, you know, you think about Schizopolis and or Traffic, as you say, they're both movies that have disjointed storylines that jump around to different characters that one is much more wacky, one's much more serious, but they're really about something. They're really deeply about things, issues or identity or in case of Schizopolis and, uh, you know, knowing another person. And there's all that stuff for me or most of that stuff is missing from this movie so that all the misdirection I could forgive if it came to something at the end, but it doesn't come to anything at the end. It seems to have no conclusions about anything or, or none of the characters really have any conclusions except that what Catherine Kinnear after Gus, after David and company dies, she realizes she wants to stay with David Hyde Pierce like that. I'm just not interested. I, I just I don't think that's about anything. By the time it gets to the end, it, it doesn't have nearly as much on on its mind as I think it thinks it does. I was trying to figure out how the credits are billed. I think it's sort of the bigger names are alphabetical, and then it just sort of goes from there. But when I was looking, David Duchovny was first billed. And I know that doesn't always mean a lot, but I was just like, oh, okay. And so he finally shows up, and he's getting a massage, and I wrote down he's finally showing up and then i checked the clock and we were 34 minutes in i was like wait 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 i've only seen half an hour of this movie like (laughs) i was exhausted by that point and then he's on screen like one other time and he gets an erection and his whole like storyline is he just gets a massage and gets a happy ending goes and gets money and then what is my favorite part of the movie which has nothing to do with this movie is that if you go back in one of the best, or maybe the best episode of The X-Files ever, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, Peter Boyle plays Clyde Bruckman, he can see the future. You know, people are always talking about, like, how am I going to die? And he makes a joke that Mulder is going to die <laughs> from autoerotic asphyxiation. And for David Duchovny to die in this movie that way just 
filled my heart with such happiness that Clyde Bruckman's prophecy <laughs> yeah. came true. Also, what's great about that is that, you know, Scully says, you know, how am I going to die? He just says, you don't, which is just, it's perfect. When that happened, I was like, why am I not just watching that episode of The X-Files right now? You know, we made that vow on Keanu Club, as you're listening to this earlier this year, about how we're not going to watch bad movies. Like, this is a movie that I would have stopped like 25 minutes in, if that. Like, I was just done. I really didn't dislike it as much as as you did. Another connection here that I think also points to a failing of this movie, there's a film movement that crystallized in Scandinavia in 1995 called Dogma 95 that Lars von Trier is sort of the main proponent of. This group of Scandinavian filmmakers got together and wrote up these vows of chastity, right? Like they're going to, these things that, that is a list kind of similar to what Soderbergh had, and I'm sure he had this in mind when he wrote his list, his sort of cheekier version of this. These guys were, were very, very self-important, but the, their list had do with how films are made and they said they were doing things said things like films must be shot on location and you can't bring props and sets into the location you have to just use whatever's there you can't have any external um, non-diegetic music so you can't put in any score over your movie you can't have any special effects all, all of these kinds of things and try in, in an attempt in their mind to get film back to its sort of core values back to reality and most of them were shot on dv now most of those movies are not very good most of the truly dogma 95 movies i can't really watch and i think the same thing is kind of, is kind of true with this i think that maybe adhering too closely to your strict sort of code can blind you to what you're not getting in terms of the movie. Now, that may be said, he may be after something different. I just can't discern what that is necessarily. But I don't hate this movie. I did not actively despise this movie. I, I found my mind wandering. I don't think I'll probably watch it again. But as I say, there are parts in it that really, that I think are really worth, you know, worth seeing. And it will be interesting to see as he works with some of these actors later on and uses some of these techniques later on, we'll be able to trace it back to here. Well, in the movie, they're talking about actors, but Julia Roberts talks to Blair Underwood about like batting average for actors. And she's like, if you make 20 movies and eight are memorable or eight are great, that's 400 your Hall of Fame. And so, you know, they're talking about him as an actor, but I also saw that as like Soderbergh. And I, think, I feel like that's sort of his whole thing. Like, nobody's going to love every one of his movies because he's so radically different. But like, the fact that he's given us Sex Lies and Out of Sight and Aaron Brockovich and Oceans and like, there's great stuff to come still i'm willing to not hold this one against him i'm just never gonna watch this again yeah if this wasn't steven soderbergh i probably would not have given this the time of day to be be quite honest with you although i'm gonna mention again i'm gonna say you know check out ellie parker it is closer to you know like a good dogma film than this is or anything close to this and it's got Naomi Watts, and she's terrific in it. But I feel like maybe Soderbergh just wanted to show his versatility. And now I'm starting to realize this is probably, you know, the perfect thing to do to decompress after something like Ocean's Eleven. With all that fame and attention now, he can sort of say, look, this is where, you know, filmmaking is in 2002 on the indie level. This is like the really weird experimental type of stuff. And I want to show the mainstream this, and this might be my only chance. And even if it's not going to work, like at least they'll have an idea, an inkling that there's weird shit going on in film right now, and not everything is Ocean's Eleven. That there are people out there who are way less successful than Soderbergh who are making movies like this all the time, you know? And maybe just trying to somehow open people's eyes and, and broaden their horizons 
a bit, but I do feel like this is an endurance test, um, intentionally or not. And maybe that is part of the point is like these types of movies are things that make you think hard. And then at the end, you realize there's not really all that much to think about. I just don't find this entertaining. And that's basically what it comes down to for me. I find certain intellectual mind teasers entertaining, but I just this one doesn't have that quality to it where it's like of interest and fun and like I want to revisit it to sort of unlock what he's trying to say here. You know, I wonder if I sort of had a train of thought that it was inspired by what you were saying, but I was also... Okay, I've got a lot of things going on in my brain right now about this movie. So first off, you were saying, you know, about, like, more successful whatever. This movie still made money somehow. It, it made $3.5 million in theaters. So I guess you could sort of build it as, like, a, hey, it's a Julia Roberts, Brad Pitt movie. And you don't have to tell people that Brad Pitt's only on a magazine cover and a poster and in, like, the movie for two minutes. But from there on Box Office Mojo, I was trying to figure out where January Jones was in this movie. I don't remember seeing her. And she was that secretary... And so I wonder if there is a metaphor here that twice in the movie, at least two times, I might have missed more, they're playing that quote-unquote game about what's your porn star name, and it's your middle name and then the street you grew up on. And we start out with her in the in her office or whatever. Does she work in Catherine Keener's office? Is that the same building? No, David Hyde Pierce's office. Okay. And so he's the one talking to her. Somebody's talking to her. And it's clear that she just has zero interest in it. And it's maybe because he's not the most handsome. He's not delivering it in the right way. But then later we see the same sort of thing at this party where, you know, Julia Roberts is there and Blair Underwood's there. And they're like, everybody's basically beautiful and it's more Hollywood. And it's just like, everybody's like, they're playing the game and they're loving it. And like, even Jeff Garland's getting in on it. Jeff Garland's in this movie. And I wonder if there's like a metaphor here in terms of like the same thing, but with different people and sort of like, they're both... Soderbergh movies, but in some ways they don't work. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like maybe I'm just trying to add meaning to something that I don't understand why it's in the film otherwise. But I feel like there's maybe something there in terms of having the right setting and you know being able to sell it versus you know in a dingy office with no money and like just nobody's into it. I could see that a bit, you know, depending on situation and status, what comes out of your mouth may seem, you know, creepy or more like a party game, you know, right? Because I definitely get the sense that uh, January Jones is not interested whatsoever in what David Hyde Pierce is, is saying. Also, he's a married man, so maybe she's like, why is this married man trying to hit on me? But then you go to the party and you have, you know, everybody's joining in on the fun. For me, what that proves and what why I feel like the Sound and the Fuhrer stuff works best for me is because they're these reoccurring bits. They're these running gags. Like, we just cut him back to this guy playing, you know, getting ready to play Hitler. And, like, we really don't really know why or how this connects. We find out the director has met Catherine Keener's sister online and that they're going to meet up for a date or something. But, like, I feel like that and the what is your sex name thing, which comes up, like, four or five times throughout the movie. Like, those are parts that work better because they reoccur that you know that there are these jokes that keep coming back and therefore like it's like we're grounded within those bits a little deeper as opposed to like all this randomness going on it also gets to something we've been tracking all along about 
Soderbergh, his interest in language and in language's inability to allow us to connect or our attempts to use language to connect then backfire. And, you know, his sexual dysfunction plays a big role in this movie. Well, not a big role. In some of the storylines that sort of comes through in a way that, that also comes back to his early work, uh, you know, it begins with these, as much as we maybe don't care for the still shots with the interviews at the beginning, it's the third film of his that we have that starts with someone being interviewed that begins with a not seeing the character or seeing the seeing a still shot of the character in this case and hearing them be be interviewed. You know, this is you could imagine this being someone trying to do Soderbergh. Like I could imagine this being a copycat Soderbergh. It's just not hitting the mark, right? Like he's playing with some of the same things, but there's nothing underneath it or it's not advancing it or, or something. But as you say, I wonder if the things that work the best are the things that play more to his strengths and then the, the the rest of it just isn't it's not in his wheelhouse in some way or he's not not connected to it emotionally in the same way we know that he's a filmmaker who is more at home with the if he, if he has to choose he's going to go with the mental puzzle and not the emotional impact and his best movies combine the two but i think that in this case he maybe goes you sort of steers a little more toward the intellectual and then loses out on the character and the emotion in some way Whatever it is, I didn't like it. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah. But you know what I got to say? I'm not very familiar with this actor, but he kind of caught my attention here. Blair Underwood. I'm kind of surprised. Like, what is he up to? Because I don't really know him from anything. Oh, he's and been thought, in a like, bunch of stuff. He's the, He does more TV than movies. Blair Underwood and I go back a long way. I was a huge perhaps inordinately big fan of L.A. Law in the 90s. Okay, so since I occasionally confess on this show, I'm going to make a confession. The Thursday nights on NBC when L.A. Law would come on, I, and I, I was probably in like fifth and sixth grade at sort of its height, I would stand on the beanbag chair in our living room and conduct the opening theme song. Awesome. <laughs> as, it, as it came on. And then watch the show religiously. Blair Underwood was, uh, was one of the stars of that show and i've always thought he's a remarkably magnetic personality he has found much much more work on tv and has had has had a lot of projects that he's been a part of that either haven't gone to that have, or that have lasted but that that would be why you you may not have seen him because the thing i really got to give him credit for is like he's basically the only one here well julia roberts as well but i don't really feel it as much but he's basically playing two different people entirely two different roles and i'm and i'm picking up on that at least like i get that the character he's playing in the fake movie is different than his character walking around in the fake world so i just wanted to uh, to mention him and give him a lot of credit but he's playing them both as real characters right i mean he's playing them both they both feel more real than even some of the other actors who are playing just one character yeah like he really came off the screen for me is I guess what I'm saying more than just not recognizing him like he goes into that spoken word at one point and I was like wow like that's that's really good I was just really kind of surprised I guess maybe you know because he was there he, he was kind of a lifeline at times and like I could focus back in on him and he helped me get through the movie but and that's always I think that's a mark of a really good actor you know someone who can sort of help you hold your hand until the end of the movie in a way <laughs> just like a life preserver in the otherwise murky depths of Full Frontal. I have no more notes about this movie. Tobin, what else do you have? Anything else? So I watched the making of on the DVD. I don't know if you guys wanted... I bought a Blu-ray. Okay. There were no features. Oh. I don't know if you might get the Blu-ray or the DVD. There was... There's nothing listed on the back. There was no subtitles. The DVD menu, or the Blu-ray menu, it, there's just one button that says play feature. Like, there's nothing. 
if you're going to watch this movie, if someone out there in, in Podland who's not watched this movie watched this movie before is going to watch it, here's my recommendation: get yourself a used copy of the DVD and turn on the director commentary. Don't watch the movie without it. Just watch the movie with the commentary and listen to Soderbergh and his writer talk through the movie. I turned it on once or twice just to sort of see what the hell they were thinking, and I found it much more entertaining to listen to them talk about the movie than the movie actually seemed to be. The other thing is that there are a couple then, there's some deleted scenes which aren't that interesting, and then some other making of things. And the most, two of the most interesting things, one of them connects back to something that Mike was saying about reality, that and the DV versus the stuff shot on 35mm film. We forget maybe that at the time, in 2002, digital video was very new thing in terms of shooting feature films and was looked down upon by a lot of <laughs> of the Hollywood establishment and did not look great compared to film as you see in this movie this is you know this is as good as it gets and you know, 15 years ago it's it's not it does not match the the quality of actual film but one thing you wanted the movie to sort of play with is what's reality like we're, we're used to seeing 35 millimeter film as reality but then we shoot like home videos on video and we think that's reality so how can we sort of play back and forth with that the other interesting thing is that two actors in this movie auditioned for the james spader role in sex lies and videotape and before they were stars and he says in the uh, making of, he said, these are two actors who came in to read for that part and they, they didn't fit it. But when they both walked out of the room, he said, we you know, all turn to each other and say, that is somebody who's going to have a real career. One of them was David Hyde Pierce, who would go on to Frasier and, you know, a million other things. And one of them was David Duchovny, pre-X-Files. Oh, wow. Yeah. They both, both so David. just guys named David guys did pretty well David. for themselves. Yeah. So, and that's where he knew them from and then asked them, you know, to come back and, and be part of this experiment. It's sort of fun having seen all the stuff to imagine those guys in the James Spader role. David Duchovny, as both an actor and as a person and as a character, has always sort of played like this sex upset. Like, he didn't he like check himself in the sex rehab 10 years ago? And, you know, Mulder was always like this sort of perverted, like early on, like they dropped this storyline, but like Mulder was like super into porn, like weirdly into porn. And then like Californication, he was always like huge into like sleeping around. And then he was also in the Red Shoe Diaries. I like that this career, he's always been like sort of weirdly obsessed with sex. So like that James Spader role in Sex Lies like would have been in retrospect, like kind of perfect in his career trajectory. Only other connections that I just wanted to, to, to bring up. So Nikki Cat, who's the actor who's playing the actor who's playing Hitler, was in the Limey and was the, one of the hitmen in the Limey. Mary McCormick, who's Catherine Keener's sister, is going to have a main role in K Street, which is a show he made for HBO coming up. And then Sandra Oh shows up in a tiny role. And so the movie's full of people who, who will be, if you know, along with January Jones, people who will become well-known, as well as people who were known at the time. Anyway, it's, it's, it is kind of a fun window into 2002, the, the world of L.A. actors at that point. But yeah, it does, to my summation is, I agree with you guys this doesn't work. I maybe, I maybe didn't hate it quite as much as you did, but it does so far the bottom of the barrel although i did like it better than his fallen angels episode yeah that was that bad. was really bad but uh but, <laughs> but that, since that's not a film we don't count that as part of our thing so yeah i put the put this at the bottom of the barrel and i'm excited to move on 
I'm so annoyed that this Blu-ray had no features that I'm contemplating buying the DVD just so I have that. Because you can get it for like six bucks shipped on Amazon. So I guess why not? I don't know. Because it's more interesting to hear him talk about the movie than to watch this movie. Oh, well, actually, one other note that I did have. Last week, we talked about Ocean's Eleven. We talked about how it came out in December 2001. And we talked about like whether or not 9-11 sort of had any kind of impact on that. And I'm not sure if it did or not. But, you know, it was either way, it was some good lighthearted fun for America to enjoy in those dark months. He Here, there was apparently a storyline or a plotline about placards that told people how to survive a hotel room fire, and that's a title that he wanted to use for this movie. And then after 9-11, he dropped that completely, you know, obviously for the right reasons or whatever. But it's so weird to me that he had this idea for, like, a plot line. And who knows if it would have been just a couple minutes or, like, most of the movie or whatever. And that it was so important or so noteworthy that it was going to inspire the name of the movie, and then he just drops that and goes with another thing. It's strange how things work out sometimes. Or don't work out, as this... Or don't work out. (laughs) That's interesting. That that makes me think of the... I think it's like the last shot, but it's the shot of the uh, two people on the airplane. It's shot on DV, so it's supposed to be, you know, quote-unquote reality. And then the cameraman just keeps walking backwards, and you realize that the plane hangar is inside of a giant soundstage, and mm-hmm. that that wasn't even reality at the, anymore. <laughs> and it's like, man, I wish that paid yeah, off. Yeah, exactly. I really, really, really wish that paid off, because that's such a cool idea, and that would have been a great mind-blower to end the movie on. So we're entering a phase, another phase in Cinemakers, where I don't know what these things are. We got Full Frontal, which I never heard of before. We Solaris, which I sort of know about. K Street, Keen, Eros. Like there, we're we're in a, a five thing, a five movie or a five podcast stretch where I've never seen any of it. And then we're going to have mostly, most of what he does after Ocean's 12, I've either seen or know a lot about. But this is like the, a really weird, not necessarily like a, a good or a bad stretch, because I don't know, but just a real, it's sort of like the, the middle years of Keanu. Like, where, what was going on at this time? I don't know if it's a phenomenon. I mean, we've only really done Cage, Keanu, and now this uh, at this point. And, but Shia. Is, oh, and Shia, yeah. Don't forget about really, Mr. LaBeouf. We did Shia. We went backwards. So I'm not sure if I was picking up on this phenomenon so much. But what's interesting is, like, an actor, a director, you'll, you'll sort of work your way up to, like, this hit and then maybe coast on that success for a while. And between, your ne- between that and your next hit, like you can really fumble into obscurity sometimes you know like you could get into some weird shit like between speed and the matrix like keanu did some really strange stuff and you know i feel like we're gonna that might be the time that these guys like get it out of their system you know it's like i've got this success like what is it gonna take to get back to that do i need to you know get all these ideas you know, do I have to get the bad ideas out of me and get those out and up front and people consume that and then I can come back with, you know, something that works and they'll understand and see it from that point of view. I don't know. It's just a weird phenomenon that it tends after like a big success, there's a lot of these lesser known projects that come along and then it seems like, oh, a while later they'll have another big success and they're back on the board. Also, as you say, maybe it's just all built up for for Soderbergh, right? Because he's had Out of Sight and then, and then The Limey, which nobody really saw, but it, we all kind of liked. And then Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, and Ocean's Eleven. So maybe that's why he's he's sort of feels he can dive into such a big, such a long stretch of, of more obscure or less uh, sort of mainstream films. 
hey man, all the power to him because he's still working and still doing big things. So if he he weathered the storm, maybe it's a self-imposed storm, but he got through it. So. And he's even, you know, coming back out of retirement and everything, so he's not done yet. So for all things Cinemakers and all the other shows that we mentioned, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter and see all the shows that we're doing. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and or Stitcher. Rate, review, all that sort of stuff. Tell your friends. Like the page. Follow the page. I don't know. Do things that you do on social media. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I am Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.